Episode 6, Murder, Mayhem and the Unknown. What you're about to hear are a series of events that occurred during my time as a state police officer and as a peacekeeper. Be warned that some of these accounts are gruesome as they are based on true and factual events. Some details have been changed due to privacy and confidentiality concerns, but not in a way to affect the veracity of this story. Death has this smell to it. I'm not referring to a body that's decaying from sitting there for a few days, but the actual and immediate occurrence of a death. It has this unique smell that I can't link to anything else that you'd easily identify it with. The human body emanates particular and specific odours which can only be associated with death and not much else. This smell also becomes more prevalent if some part of the body is removed or if the body itself has been, say, slashed open. Believe me, unless you have some degree of perversion, it's not something you necessarily want to experience or deal with on a very regular basis, unless you have to, I suppose. During my 30-year career of law enforcement, I dealt with many circumstances of death in many, many forms. My varied career placed me into unique positions which exposed me to situations of death of every conceivable manner. Whether it was self-inflicted, like putting a thick metal chain around your neck, padlocking it to a tree and driving your car away at speed until it takes up the slack, or placing your neck on a train track, which actually surprised me as when the head does lop off, the pressure of the wheel on the track effectively sears the body close. But Regardless of what the circumstances were, I always managed to keep my stomach contents intact. However, I do remember one instance where I came close, really close. A few years ago, I received a call to conduct a welfare check on an elderly lady who hadn't been heard from for a couple of days. It was a reasonably cold winter's night and I was working with a new trainee who was, like we all were when we were fresh out of the academy, as keen as mustard. I was aware he was yet to deal with death, as he regularly questioned and spoke to me about it as we patrolled around. And I also knew that when you're as new as he was, the one thing you're not that necessarily keen about is dealing with, shall we say, your first body. Nearly every single trainee would say they just want to get the first one out of the way and they hope and pray it's a nice, simple, easy one, something like a natural death or similar. So anyway... We attend this house and there's no response to a knock on the front door and there's no light on inside. I could hear the gas meter running on the outside of the house, so it was more than likely someone was inside with the heater going as it was fairly cold. We walked around the dark outside of the house, flicking our flashlights through the side windows as we passed, until we noticed the legs and upper body of what must have been the old dear lying or collapsed on the carpeted floor in the lounge room. She had obviously fallen or suffered some medical episode. We banged on the window, but we couldn't rouse her, so the standard procedure here is to request an ambulance, break a window, and gain entry to provide assistance. Now, let me point out in these type of situation, this also calls for the old bull, young bull way of thinking. So I told the trainee he would be going in first through the window, which I would break and slide open. I was very explicit in my instructions, that as soon as he got in, he was to go straight to the front door 
as I will be waiting there. So I smashed the window, and as I pushed it up and out of the way, it immediately hit me. Heat and a smell that I can't even begin to describe, both of which must have been trapped inside there for days, flowed through the break in the window. Now think of the worst thing you've ever smelt and multiply it by 10. But so keen was this trainee to help the old dear, he flew through that window and he ran straight to her without much of a second thought. I watched him frantically reach down and feel for a pulse before he put his mouth over hers and, correctly I suppose, put two quick breaths into her before he started pounding on her chest with CPR strokes. Ah, shit. I climbed through the window as quickly as I could, used my left hand to pinch my nose closed, and with my right hand, I pulled him off her. Now, he didn't fully understand why I stopped him from performing CPR. He looked up to me and he says, She's alive. I saw her moving, but she's got no pulse. I flashed my torch onto the old lady's face, and I kid you not, two maggots could be seen coming from the inside of her mouth. The old dear was moving all right, but she was moving because she'd been there in the heat for a few days and she was being eaten from the inside out. So even after the trainee emptied the contents of his stomach next to and I must say, partly on her, I still managed to keep mine down. Just. That whole exercise just served to prove what I knew already. They were still breeding them young and dumb at that academy. So let's move on to one of the other sides of death, murder. There is a well-known and documented homicide detective's creed, and let me read it to you. It says, No greater honour will ever be bestowed on you as a police officer or a more profound duty imposed on you than when you are entrusted with the investigation of the death of a human being. It is a heavy responsibility. Now, I'm on board with that, and even though I attended many, I never did fully investigate a homicide per se, as I was never positioned in that role. I did perform a number of arrests of murderers by definition, and the one thing I found strange was how the vast majority of them did seemingly fit was, is perceived to be, shall we say, the persona or a description of a murderer. Now, a classic example of this was when I attended a domestic dispute where a neighbour called saying someone had been screaming for help. He said that he'd looked over the fence and saw one of the young males that lived next door chasing his brother around the front yard with a knife. As the first to arrive at the scene, I found a young and very overweight male lying on his back, half in and half out of the doorway to a caravan in the driveway. The top half of his body was inside the van, the bottom half on the steps and on the concrete of the drive. There were pools of blood on the driveway near his feet, and it had also sprayed upwards, literally painting the outside wall of the van in red. He was topless and shoeless, and his bloody jeans partly shredded. Standing over him, I noted he'd been stabbed and slashed multiple times with a knife on every single limb and torso. The most major of his wounds was to the left side of his chest, and it was so deep and long that it had severed several of the large pectoral muscles, which caused the shoulder to partly detach from his upper body. I heard a guttural scream come from inside the house, and I found no obvious need to check for a pulse. So I placed my hand on the butt of my firearm but chose to leave it in the holster for the moment. I carefully but quickly headed along the side of the caravan towards what I could see was a side door to the house underneath the carport. 
As I rounded the front end of the van, I unexpectedly walked straight into the gaze of the brother with the knife, who was waiting at the front of the carport. He was sitting, which I was to later describe as slumped, and as if he was just casually resting in one of those cheap white plastic chairs. He watched me as I appeared at the front of the van and came into his view and his reach. He was staring straight, if not straight through me. His right arm hung casually over the arm of the chair, a large, long and bloodied kitchen knife firmly in his hand, soaked in blood. When you reflect back, it's amazing what goes through your mind. I quickly evaluated he wasn't in a position to immediately pounce, as he was seated in an off-balance sort of way. But I knew that should I choose to draw my firearm, he was still close enough that he could easily close on me before I could get it out. I had put my blinkers on, and it was a stupid, stupid mistake to place myself in such a position. But what I also took in was what I mentioned earlier. Right here in front of me was the absolute personification of what is typically perceived to be the textbook murderer, if there is such a thing. He was young, 22, barefooted, and casually dressed in a tight-fitting pair of lightly checked bay shorts. He wore a now heavily blood-stained light blue shirt with all of the buttons done up. His build was thin, totally the opposite to his brother. His shoulder-length blonde hair was straight and unkempt, and he now possessed streaks of blood, red-coloured highlights. All of that immediate physical appearance was a little strange, but it was the rest of him that I found the most perturbing. He had a pair of thin-framed, oversized, square pair of glasses with eyes the like I'll never forget. They drilled through me and were, metaphorically, a pair of daggers in themselves. And the smirk. The best way to describe it was it was one of those all-knowing, no-caring, don't-give-a-fuck, smart-ass smirks. Between you and me, seriously creepy. I'd stopped in a bladed position to him, and my firearm on my right was out of his direct sight. This allowed me to move the safety catch out of the way on top of my holster without him noticing. So, what is the best course of action when confronted with a clearly crazed individual with a knife? I use the best weapon you have. My mouth. Hey mate, I said, as relaxed and as casual as I could muster, can I get you to put the knife down onto the ground for me? Keeping his eyes locked on mine, and without much of a second thought, he immediately stood up, bent down, and gently placed the knife at his feet before turning around and putting his hands, I'll say procedurally, together at the small of his back. Thank fuck. That could have turned real ugly. You know, I've seen bodies stretched and stay intact even after going under numerous wheels of a fast-moving truck. I remember a parachutist who landed on his feet when his parachute didn't open only to have his skeleton stay mainly erect, but for all of his skin and organs to tear off and collect in a huge pile at his feet. But not only can the physical human body do some weird things, so can the mind. It can conjure. There were these two young bucks making their way home in the early hours of the morning of what would have been a hot summer's day. One of them was 18, the other 19, which is both at that age where they consider themselves fairly bulletproof. They were travelling east in an old, unroadworthy and unsafe dark green Nissan in a 100km hour speed zone on a two-lane semi-rural road. 
Both had been heavily on the beers since around midday, and they were doing a fair bit more than the posted speed limit, as the Nissan tried to negotiate a fast-sweeping and mildly downhill right-hand bend when it didn't work out. As I approached the scene after getting the call, the first thing I identified was the Nissan had drifted out of the left-hand lane and onto the gravel shoulder on the left side of the road. This had happened some 350 metres prior to where it ended up, backwards down a culvert or a ditch, into a very large, unmoving and unforgiving gum tree. There was no evidence of any braking when it entered the gravel shoulder, and it wasn't to be for another 200 metres further on where the yaw marks indicated the point it had returned to the road from the gravel shoulder and tried to correct itself. The marks then continued in a reasonably straight line, heading across onto the wrong side of the road and to the top of the culvert. It appears the sedan has partly launched itself off the top of the dirt culvert and spun 45 degrees before impacting the enormous tree backwards. The scene around the point of impact was pure carnage, as it had struck the tree with such violent force, it spread debris everywhere. Professional estimates later determined it would have been travelling at a little over 100 kilometres an hour at the point of impact, even though it had washed off a fair bit of speed as it had slid across the road. The amount of force travelling through that vehicle as it came to an immediate and an abrupt stop would have been immense. Thankfully, there were only the two males in the front and there had been no one in the rear. However, of those two, the driver was now deceased and he was still in the vehicle, the passenger out and in the back of an ambulance. Even though the entire front of the car had missed the absolute point of impact, every single panel of it was destroyed. It had concertinaed on itself and shortened its length by a couple of feet. I didn't need to climb inside to see or smell it, as the reek of alcohol was obvious in the surrounds. Multiple cans of beer, both empty and full, littered the inside and outside of the car, and the strong odour of it mingled with the smell of automotive fluids and the fuel. The left front door was open where the passenger had exited, and I carefully leaned in to have a closer inspection of the young male driver. I was a little surprised to see he was totally intact after such an incredible amount of brute force would have transferred through him. That force, though, had snapped the back of his seat, and he was now lying down, his seatbelt still fixed into the buckle. All of his limbs were still attached, but his head was at an unnatural and a strange angle to the right. His neck was clearly broken, and I'd noticed a very small amount of blood and other bodily fluid emanating from his left ear. The fact that his injuries appeared minor wasn't all that surprising, as time and time again I'd attended accidents where people have just walked away unscathed due to being heavily inebriated. The theory is they're either asleep or they're so relaxed and therefore they're flexible at the time of the collision, so that very little breaks as it tends to when you've tensed up. I remember a car being split in two after being hit by a train, both pieces of the car sent spinning down the track. The drunk driver was thrown from the car and we found his body intact next to the tracks. When one of the guys touched his neck to check for a pulse, he literally jumped up and he shaped up to them to box it out. So I went to the rear of the ambulance where the surviving male was screaming and carrying on, which is actually always a good sign as he too looked remarkably unscathed. I wasn't sure if he knew his mate was deceased or not, and it's obviously not prudent to mention it at this point, but when he saw me standing at the rear, 
He started yelling out, a white car had clipped them and had forced them off the road. Due to the fact that he became fairly agitated, the paramedics asked me to give them a minute while they connected him up to the machines that go ping. So I returned back to the green Nissan. Even though it was a crumpled mess, I couldn't see any obvious marks of contact with the white car. I did notice there was a transfer of light blue paint on the rear driver's side door, but it was hard to determine how fresh it was. I was then approached by a middle-aged female who stated she was the one that had called for the ambulance after she heard the collision from her bedroom. I asked her if she had assisted or spoken to the occupants, to which she replied she had just got to the roadside as the front passenger door was pushed open and she saw the young male fall out onto his hands and knees. She had run to him and heard him mumbling, white car, white car, as she helped him to his feet. It was only when I asked her what had happened next that I fully twigged. She said, as there were glass and debris spread everywhere, she asked the young male if he had any shoes as he was barefooted. But she said he reached in through the car and he retrieved them from near the feet of the deceased driver. I returned to the rear of the ambulance again and I could see the paramedics had managed to calm the passenger down. I asked them if I could have a quick chat to him, which they approved. So I said, have you been drinking today? He said, yeah, yeah. He said, I've had a couple, but Luke only had one, so he said he'd drive. Is he okay? I deliberately ignored his question and I asked him whose car it was. It's mine, he said, but I let Luke drive. Did you get the white car that hit us? Will Luke be okay? I could see the paramedics had cut off his T-shirt, so I asked one of them if they could lift the blanket that they'd placed over him. And yep, there it was, just as I'd anticipated, as thankfully he'd done the right thing when he got into the car and put his seatbelt on. The seatbelt he'd been wearing left the slightest of redness from the tightening across his chest due to the energy transferred from the impact. A red welt was just visible, starting at the top of his shoulder, his right shoulder. I reflected back on the deceased male in the driver's seat. It was the left side of his head that had redness and the blood and body matter had seeped from his left ear. This indicated to me his head had impacted the B-pillar on the left passenger side of the vehicle next to his head and had caused this damage to his body and the bleed. Had he actually been the driver, there's little if any chance the left side of his head would have impacted anything particularly as he was supposedly wearing his seatbelt, restraining him from movement. Now it all pieced together. Well, have a look at that, I said to the patient when they removed his blanket. That mark on your shoulder tells me you were the driver, not your mate. He started to shake. The tears flowed and he didn't say another word. In the subsequent court case, he made full admissions to being the driver at the time of the collision and the only explanation he could give was that he had fallen asleep at the wheel. He had returned a very high alcohol reading, and when you combine that with a great deal of luck, it had more than likely saved him. He had probably been as relaxed as a floppy doll at the time of impact, and he'd received little, if any, injury. But the other bit that came to light was that he had the mindset to conjure up a plan. He had grabbed his mate Luke and pulled him across the front of him where he placed him into the driver's seat and secured the seatbelt around him. Let me read that creed to you just one more time. No greater honour will ever be bestowed on you as a police officer or a more profound duty imposed on you than when you are entrusted with the investigation of the death of a human being. 
it is a heavy responsibility. They left out a word. It should read, successfully investigate. If you're enjoying these episodes and would like to be informed when a new episode is posted, please follow and support me on my Instagram page, truecrime.ericwelsh. Thank you.